This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely delighted to be joined on CFB by the first guest to appear on the show three times and I couldn't ask for a better guest to complete the hat-trick than the man I'm joined by today. He's one half of The Price of Football, which I, I always mention is my favourite football podcast and never miss a show, as, as producer Guy and, and Kieran and Kevin know. And the man who joins me is Kevin Day, who's written this incredible football book, Who Are You? 92 Football Clubs and Why You Shouldn't Support Them. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. It's my first ever hat-trick, basically. I scored, in a 12-year in a Sunday football career, I scored two goals, one every six years. So a hat-trick at my stage of life is is good. And thank you for being such a fan of the Prize of Football podcast. You had a question asked yesterday, which we answered on, on today's pod about Scottish football, which is a very interesting question and led to a lot of a lot of discussion. Because you, you were right, because you pointed out that uh, clubs are legally obliged to show their, well, they're supposed to, some clubs are very slack at doing it, they have to show their accounts, but the, the, yeah, the, whether leagues have to show their accounts is a slightly grey area, and, and your point about Scottish football showing where the money's coming in and where it's going was a, a very valid one. Well, well, as I say, in terms of the show, I love the fact that you interact with your audience and, and the fact that you, you, you've you grown into the ultimate double act now. But <laughs> I spoke to, to producer Guy um, over the phone a few weeks ago um, just for some advice for myself when we were talking about the show. And he said, when we put them together, we never anticipated the chemistry developing so quickly. Did you ever think you would you would form such chemistry with a Brighton fan? Well, no, to be honest, it's not. I, I suppose we've got a lot more in common than we have that divides us. But the trouble is, the one thing that divides us is a massive, massive thing: the 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 fact that he supports them and I support Palace was an issue, which is why Guy and he didn't tell me about it until we'd done four episodes of the pod, and it suddenly occurred to me to ask who who Kieran supports. Um, I, I didn't think, in a strange sort of way, not being able to see each other has helped with the the chemistry, I, and and I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that should be because obviously we did, we did the first five months of the pod from October to to the end of February together, and we got on very well. But somehow, having to do it remotely has helped us create more of a. I don't know if intimacy is the right word, but has created more of a bond. And it's, it's we've both got unique. What what genuinely does annoy me, Callum, is that. Yeah, he's he's the accountant. He's meant to be the boring one, but the whole pod is full of stories about the Russian mafia and and Russian women and and women in Thailand and in the Caribbean and all sorts of shenanigans that he's got up to, which is bizarre for a teetotal. He's never taken drugs in his life. He's never never drunk alcohol. He, he likes cricket for God's sake. But all these things come up, and everyone thinks that I'm the dull one. And I'm the I'm the stand-up comedian. I've, I'm the one that's woken up in skips in Edinburgh, and well, I never get to tell my stories. Because everyone thinks I'm his his dull straight man. But he's um, it, it's been a pleasure doing it, and I genuinely I, I I've genuinely come to really like him. I think I, I adore him actually, and it's uh, I think 
you know, putting aside the football rather, it's just that we both have this kind of old-fashioned romantic view about football. Um, both of us, in a way, really admire German football, the way that fans are involved in the finances of football clubs here, the 50-plus-1 rule, and that in an ideal world, no British football club would be owned by American billionaires and, and would be trying to change the way football is run. But, you know, that's, that's never going to happen. But we both share that old-fashioned romantic view about where football clubs should be at the heart of of every community, especially in, in England and Scotland, where football clubs are are very different to, to clubs on the continent. You know, so many football clubs on the continent were, were were started by Scottish and English people anyway, who wanted to emulate what they had back at back at home. And and really one of our points is that there shouldn't be as many clubs as there is in Scotland and, and England because they're small countries relatively. We shouldn't have the amount of football clubs we do, but we do for a reason. And one of the reasons we like talking about Scottish football is that our growth should be cherished as much as Liverpool or Man United. And I think we we both instinctively shared that view from the start. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've been so popular um, is that we do take every club just as seriously. And 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 our growth fan has got every right to be have his question answered as a a Liverpool fan or a Real Madrid fan. So. Yeah, that's a long way of asking, answering your question. But yes, I, I am surprised by how well we got on, but I'm actually pleasantly surprised. It's never been a chore, to be perfectly honest. And what's amazing is that there's never any shortage of things to talk about. I mean, we knew there would always be football news to talk about, but when we decided to do it twice a week, simply because we were getting so many questions, I thought we would run out of questions in a couple of weeks. But they, we've just got such a massive back, backlog because it turns out that people... Are cleverer than we are, and they've all there's all they've always got things to ask about. I mean, there was a question a couple of weeks ago we got about the royalties from for music that's played pre match, which had simply never occurred to me. Question yesterday about um retro shirts, all, all the sorts of things that never occurred to me. But, but fans worry about their clubs all the time, and, and especially at the moment, they worry that they're, they're not going to come out of this financially. So, I think they sort of look to us for reassurance. And your question about Scottish football was a very, a very interesting one. And as it turned out, it's a really interesting one because it threw into stark relief the amount of money washing around Scottish football with the amount of money that's washing around football south of the border. And, and Scottish football, and I know Neil Doncaster, the head of the SPSPL, hasn't got, it's got detractors, but it, it seems to me that he's doing a pretty good job on the, the limited budget that's coming into Scottish football. And also you've got issues around the, you know, the Ladbroke sponsorship ending and TV money. So it's, it's brilliant that Scottish football is actually doing so well comparatively. And it's, uh, it's reassuring for us, those of us south of the border who do take an interest in Scottish football. Because it's, as I think we said this before, it gets so little coverage down here. You, you really have to work hard to find it, which is one of the reasons we're really pleased to, to talk about it on, on the price of football. And in terms of the the price of football, one of the things that that really uh, makes me happy, and it, and it will lead into to the book as well, is the fact that you've already sort of said what I was going to say, where you cover the every single club, um, regardless of their level. What I particularly have loved about the price of football is the fact that you've given a platform to Bury fans, mm. Charlton fans, Wigan fans, Derby, Sheffield Wednesday, all these fans of clubs that have a particular concern or concerns regarding their club. Um, Wigan in particular, I know you yeah. you, you were doing a, a quiz to help them fundraise as well, yeah. which which again sums up the attitude of everyone involved in the show that you you just love football and you love the community aspect of it. And for me, that's another 
thing that should be celebrated about your show. And, and the reason I want to mention that is because it leads me into your book, 92 English Football League Clubs. <laughs> you've got from Manchester United to Mansfield. I mean, you, you've got some incredible, you've got all incredible clubs, but they all have unique stories. And, and for you, what was it that inspired the book? Because it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. And, and I must say, it's, it's something that's been very well received. Yeah, it has been well received. I'm I'm really pleased about that. I I also need need it to sell because most of my income disappeared <laughs> through COVID. So, uh, but yes, it's gone down well, and I th- I think I know. I hope I know the reason why. That the Berry thing is interesting because the book ends with a, a rant about Berry and how there's no Berry chapter basically. And and I almost hesitate to use the word lucky, Callum, but the the Berry saga was coming to an end as Price of Football started. So it gave us a real hook to sort of wrap our anger around, basically. And I think people appreciated the fact that we launched the pod not with a story about Man United or Liverpool, but with a story about Bury and how how shameful it was. And, and again, with Wigan, we were only too pleased to be to be a platform for, for Wigan, basically, and, and to help raise money for them. Because, yeah, without those clubs there, we haven't got a podcast, to be perfectly honest. And also, Kieran and I support clubs in Palace and, and that lot of shysters that he supports, that both our clubs have been through similar situations. I mean, we Palace nearly went into administration, uh, did go into administration twice, but nearly went bust both times. We were 10 minutes from, from disappearing. Brighton you know, had to travel the whole of South East England for six or seven years looking for somewhere to play. So we understand the fear and the anxiety of football fans whose clubs are going through that. And I, I wanted the book to reflect a similar thing, that... I wanted I wanted the Mansfield chapter to be as long as the Man United chapter, basically. And I, I wanted I wanted the book to sort of reflect the rivalries in football, but also reflect the fact that for most football fans, football's the most important thing. It's like I'll argue with anybody about whether their club's better than mine, and I'll take the Mickey out of them, and I'll happily let them take the Mickey out of me. But essentially, when push comes to shove, Brighton fans helped raise money for us, and we helped raise money for them because that's the important thing. But the the inspiration, and it's this is genuinely true came I came back from a Palace game an evening game so my son he's 24 now so he was about eight or nine and he was he was still up uh, which was unusual was uh, you you have to have a couple of hours of anesthetizing yourself after a Palace game normally so I've been in a pub for a while and those remember those glorious days pubs that stayed open um so I came home and my son was still up but I was slightly worried because you think well what's what's going on and I could see Ali my wife sort of hopping from foot to foot behind him. And, and I, I said, what's the matter? He said, uh, and I remember the conversation. He said, can I, can I ask you a, a question? So well, he's a bit young for that, but okay. Um, he said, he said, dad, can I, can I be a Blackburn fan? So I said, well, of course you can. When you, when you've got a job in your own house, you can support who you want. Uh, but in the meantime, put your palace pajamas on, get underneath your palace duvet, say, <laughs> say goodnight to sell us the cat. And then, but I was really intrigued. So I said, why, why do you want to support Blackburn? And he said, well, you, you never seem to come home happy from Palace. You never seem to have much fun. That's like where he got the idea that fun was involved. I generally don't know. Um, so I said, well, that's, I said, that's part of this. Yeah, it's character building. But why Blackburn? And he said, well, I went through a load of clubs with mum trying to find a club that you don't hate. Uh, and mum said that you don't hate Blackburn because the first time you said that you loved her was, was after an away game at Blackburn when you were drunk. It's like, it's like, well, clever mummy. And I said, well, I wasn't drunk, son. It was six o'clock in the morning. I was hungover. 
but yes, I have my reasons for hating Blackburn. And I explained, it just it just occurred to me. I, it was an idea that I, it it sort of lodged at the back of my mind. This idea that we all have bizarre you know, reasons to not like every other club. And if you throw the name of any club, I'll tell you why I don't like them. So the idea sort of lodged there. But then at the start of last year, I was having one of those terrible freelance periods and just just wasn't much work going on, to be honest. And Ali's dad was ill, so she had to give up Panto to look after him. So I thought I can either sulk, as I normally do, and I haven't got any money, or I can I can think about writing the book. So I... I, I had I got some sample chapters together and and sent it off to loads of people. Nothing happened, not a thing. And six months later, this chap sidled up to me at a Palace charity and said, "Oh, here you're trying to sell a book. I, I can put you in touch with my mate at Bloomsbury. He won't like it, but I'll put you in touch." And then three days later, I got an email from Bloomsbury saying, "Come and meet and have lunch." And the the it, it went from there. But I've always I I love I'm obsessed with reading. My my dad taught me to read at the age of four. Because, as he said, it might come in handy. Uh, so I could I could read before I went to primary school, and I, I and I had a really good read. I love I've always loved reading, and I've always wanted to write a book, Callum. But I've always had this kind of working class imposter syndrome syndrome that you, that kind of feeling that I don't really belong in the world I'm in. Somehow I've I've landed up in showbiz, but it's not really where I should be. And it was just I felt the same about writing a book. It's like yeah, it's not really the sort of thing I should be doing, but um once it was commissioned i was i was over the moon but i wanted it to be a book that celebrated football but also celebrated the small things i wanted it to be a proper history so it's a proper history of each of each club but from a sort of left field point of view so like the west brom chapter for example is a discussion of the the main reasons why they're called the, there's eight reasons why they they claim to be called the baggies all of which are bollocks then total nonsense uh, so I wanted to explain each of the reasons and explain why they're all nonsense, but just as a way of reflecting the fact that football fans, I'm an intelligent bloke, I really am a quite intelligent, you're intelligent, but I would believe anything that anybody tells me about, about Palace. If somebody sidled up to me and said, you know the first ever nuclear bomb was stored under Sellers Park, I'd be like, you're joking. The first ever, I believe all, I believe all sorts of nonsense about it. And we all, we all do, we all believe idiotic pub facts that we wouldn't believe about any uh, anything else so I wanted to explore that but more importantly I wanted just to explore the fact that every club is as important to its fans no matter whether they've got five million or 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 five thousand basically and I wanted I knew I knew what would happen I knew that people would, would read their chapter first and then moan about it and then like the other 91 chapters so I knew that Millwall fans would read it and go off oh, we, you're just so wrong about what you said about Millwall and then go but yeah you're right about Charlton though and you're right about West Ham so and, it, and that's kind of how it panned out the Millwall chapter was a difficult one because there is some rivalry between us so I decided to basically do, do, do what they would really hate and patronise them essentially because <laughs> uh, for some reason Millwall fans they still think we're posh now you don't know my part of South London uh Callum, but trust me, it's not. It, it's very much not posh. There's nowhere in my part of South London you could buy food that's not in a box. Essentially, if you want, if you want to go to a restaurant, you're you're collecting it from a counter in a box with chips. There's no restaurants. We haven't got any art galleries. We, we have, but we call them walls, basically. But and yet Millwall now, this this 
rough, tough working class club it is now based in Bermondsey, which is hipster paradise now. It's like there's no pubs around Millwall's new ground, but there's ironic cheesemongers and there's beard shops and all sorts of stuff. So I wanted to reflect that change. The hardest chapter to write was actually the Brighton chapter because it, initially when I sent in the first draft of the book, um, the chapter on Brighton was just a photograph of a seagull stealing a chip from a toddler, basically. Uh, and Bloomsbury said that was a bit childish. So then I wrote I wrote a proper history of Brighton, but I, I spelt Brighton with a small b all the way through rather than a, a capital B, and they said that's a bit childish. Um, so I eventually had to do it properly. I think I think there's a lot of independent bookshops in Brighton, which is why they wanted me to do a proper job on on Brighton. But um, I, I don't think there's a book quite like it. I mean, I would say that, but I don't think there's been plenty of individual club histories, and there's been plenty of books by fans you know like my year supporting south end sort of thing or or fans that have gone to every every away game in in a season but i don't i don't think there's ever been a book that's quite quite tried to sort of explain every every club and and from a slightly different angle and and i hope i sort of respected my own brief which was to treat every club with as much seriousness as as each other and i think when it comes to 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 clubs in english football it is important that all clubs in, of all sizes are, are respected and admired. I mean, I, I was recently um, speaking to a, 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 a quite a, a famous Arsenal fan, and, and he's actually taken a real love to Cheltenham Town based on 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 where 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 he's now living. And he says that going to Cheltenham Town games has made him fall in love with football the way he did as a kid because it's brought back the memories of what football was to him growing up and. The big question I've got for you, Kevin, I don't want this to be a very bleak question, but see with the big six, so-called big six clubs, is there a danger now that the mystique of these clubs is gone and that they're, they're actually become just, in a sense, boring corporations? I mean, you think of the Liverpool of the 80s and teams like that, It's they, they've still got great teams, but it's just a, a, a massive corporation now, isn't it? I, I, think, I think there's every danger of that happening, yes. And I think we saw with Project Big Picture the fact that the top six clubs would would like that to happen and before I answer that more fully I, I think one of the only good things for football to come out of the pandemic is that so many people I know because in England you can still go to games if the club is below tier six uh, and so many people I know have been going to see their local teams just because they want to go and see a football match basically they just want to go and see no matter what the quality is no matter what the ground is like they just want to go to a ground and actually see live football and so many people are having the same experience as your Arsenal fan who's who, who loves football again because of Cheltenham they're just really reconnecting with football and how they remember it as they were kids and it's the same like the Palace uh, ladies football team is doing really well because it's just a nicer, friendlier, more relaxed atmosphere. And also you're far more in touch. And, and one of the things I haven't wanted to do in the book is, is be nostalgic. I wanted to reflect the fact that sometimes football in the 70s and 80s was awful. It was an awful experience. And so I don't want to, to keep saying it was, you know, it's smaller is better, older is better. But there is more of a connection. If you go to Cheltenham, the, the only team I would admit to having any other real affection for is Hereford because... My my father-in-law, God rest his soul, he was a Methodist minister and his last um, circuit was Hereford. And his next door neighbour was a Hereford fan. So I used to go to games with him and I'm still in touch with him. And I, I, I loved going to Hereford. It was just so much more relaxing and just I just loved the fact they still changed end. The fans still walked around the changed ends at half time. And 
it, it really is people are really reconnecting with football at, at a lower level and your question about the big six is a, is a very good one because I know so many Man United fans and so many Liverpool fans who are upset with the fact that their clubs were the ones who led on project big picture and I understand if people criticise Steve Parrish I get very defensive because if people criticise anything about Steve Parrish or Palace I would get defensive but there are things that he's said recently that I didn't agree with. His stance on Project Big Picture, I thoroughly agreed with. But there's there's no doubt that, especially Man United and Liverpool, and there's no coincidence that they're the clubs owned by Americans, they want to change a league that's been in existence for 120 years to fit them. They want their clubs to be able to raise more money through the stock market by showing the stock market that those clubs are never, ever not going to be in the top four. And Leicester winning the, the Premier League really panicked the, the so-called big six. That wasn't meant to happen. Even in a bad year, one of the big six is meant to win the, the top prize. And the fact that Leicester did it encouraged other teams, but also made them panic a little bit about their financial security. And I think a lot of fans of those clubs, and you saw this with FC United as well, a lot of fans of those clubs, when the Glazers came in, it changed the dynamic at Man United completely. And and increasingly, the bigger bigger those clubs get, the further behind their local fans become. When when a club is only interested in in a global market, and these are massive businesses, Liverpool, Man United and Man City are huge clubs, and this is not a personal attack on those clubs at all, as as you'll see in the book. I loved writing the history of those clubs. But they they have changed, and the more global they want to spread their, their wings, it's obvious that local fans are going to get left behind in that. It's obvious that people in Liverpool are going to struggle to afford ticket prices it's obviously you know and we as you say we all remember those brilliant nights when this well you don't because you're you're young you lucky bugger but you've seen them on tv those brilliant european liverpool nights same with man united that same atmosphere will never quite come back again because if 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 40 percent 50 percent of the people in your ground are flying to get there or have got a corporate season ticket and they're going once every five weeks because their account has got... Of course the atmosphere is going to change. And it it it, it worries me a great deal. If I was a fan of one of those... A Man City fan, one of the things I found researching in the book, and I didn't I didn't do a lot of research, as you, you'll find out when you ask me later, but so many Man City fans, still their favourite game is the playoff final at Wembley. Um, when they in, to get from League One up into the Championship, when they were two one down to Gillingham, and they scored uh, uh, goal in the last minute to get into the, uh, extra time, and then they won the game. They still talk about that with more affection than European nights because they're they're proper fans. But those fans will be left behind. And people talk about the Premier League being a competition and a meritocracy. And for years, English football fans in particular, they've said, well, it's Scottish. only two teams can win the Scottish title, which wasn't true in the 70s and 80s, by, by the way. We look at French football, we look at Spanish football, we look at Italian football, we go, well, it's rubbish. There's no competition because only one or two clubs can win it. It's, it's the same in our league now. And, and Leicester winning the title in 2016 has made it harder for anyone else because it, Arsenal, I, don't, I can't see Arsenal winning the Premier League in the next... 10 years they simply can't afford to compete with the level of players and that's and that's Arsenal you're talking about so I, I think you're talking about 
three clubs, and one of them's not. I think you're probably talking about Chelsea, Man City, and Liverpool, who will share the Premier League title between them for the next 20 years. And Chelsea, I think, will only win one out of five. I think Man City and Liverpool will be winning the Premier League title for the next 20 years. And that's not good for football. And in the long run, it's not good for the rest of us because in the end, overseas broadcasters won't pay to see a product where only two clubs can win. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's all very well. Everyone says, well, the Premier League's great because you know Palace can beat Man U or Fulham can beat Arsenal. And that's, that's true, but increasingly less so. And in the end, People won't do this. There's only so many ways you can put a two-piece jigsaw together. And if your choice at the start of each season is Man City Liverpool, why why will people in the Far East want to carry on watching those games in the future? It's incredibly healthy at the moment, but I think the the monopoly of those top six clubs is is to the detriment of of English football. I mean, you remember yourself, Scottish football was never more exciting than when you had Aberdeen and Dundee United and teams like that challenging for the title and getting into Europe and, and winning trophies. The 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 focus on Scottish football, the interest in Scottish football then was was brilliant, and it led to a, a really good Scottish international team as well. And at the moment, the 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 way the top six is going is not only to the detriment of English football; it's to the detriment of the English football team as well, because there's so many young English players are having to go to Germany just to get to play football. It's 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 not right. Something's something's wrong at the top of English football, and luckily, it's still brilliant outside it but the top of English football is something needs to be done what that is I don't know but it needs to be some kind of redistribution it needs to be some kind of recalibration going on basically and much as I'm a you know all my family are Celtic fans and I love Celtic it wouldn't worry me if Rangers won the league because you have to there's got to be a change you can't have the same team even if it's a team you support it's just not good for your league if the same team's winning year in year out you need to the other teams need to be able to compete and if they can't do it on their own, you need to find a way to redistribute the money so that they can do it. Because eventually, it's better for Celtic and Rangers that the other teams are competing as well. It's got to be. Absolutely. And, and another thing that, that, that the book um, can remind me of is, I always remember growing up and, and when you watched the, the Premier League or the Premiership, as it was called then, and and you had players who I still fondly remember now, the likes of Kevin Davies, and he was a, a bit of a battering ram at Bolton. Yeah. Andy Johnson at your very own yeah. Crystal Palace, flying as well. And uh, maybe naive me saying this, but I feel that you see less of those stories now because clubs have got a wee bit of extra finance where it's it's easy enough for even a newly promoted side to go and pay £20 million to... Yeah. Uh, a mid-table French side rather than getting a character from, from the Championship or League One and giving them a go. Now, I know there's been a few exemptions. You could you talk, could talk about Deli Alley um, and, and a few others. But as I say, I just loved that when the, the Premier League for me was at a real strong point, um, I always think of those late 2000s, maybe just <laughs> tinted glasses for me. But I just love the fact that you had these players, you had these characters who you could tell had dedicated their whole career to try yeah. and establish themselves in the Premier League. And you still got the big upsets back then. I mean, you remember the likes of Bolton shocking a Man United or an Arsenal. Yeah. And and it's just, I just feel that the, the more and more um, money that pours into the game, we, we, lose, we lose a bit of the origins of the game and what it really means because transfer deadline day and, and the transfer window is something that is heralded on social media. But I actually find that quite sad that as fans, people are always looking to the next window and the next opportunity rather than the next game. 
that's a really good point. And I, I think Sky TV have got a lot to answer for in, in terms of that whole showbiz transfer window thing that goes on and the, the countdown that seems to start two months before the transfer deadline now as well. And Jim White gets his orange suit on and gets excited. I had I had a, some respect for that Bolton team because they were a team of misfits, basically. And the Palace team that got into the uh, the Premier League in 2013 were a team of misfits. And they were real ragtag and bobtail players, players like Damien Delaney, who shouldn't really be in the Premier League, but appreciated it so much and took the chance and seized the opportunity. And and to the credit of Bolton and to the credit of Palace, they were given that chance as well because we simply didn't have the money. Even when we got promoted, we didn't have the money to bring players in. So we had to give those players a chance. And they rose to the bait and they kept us in the, in the Premier League. And... It's partly the fans' fault, though, sometimes, Callum. You, you, I've, I've spoken to quite a few people involved with Premier League clubs, with CEOs as well. And even when even when Palace brought in Eberichi Eze from QPR, who was arguably the championship player of the season last year, and of course Roy Hodgson's playing about position, but never mind, that's for another day. But even, even then, the Palace CEO would say, well, there are Palace fans going, why are we buying championship players? Why, you know, we, why are we not buying players from abroad? Why are we not buying established Premier League players? It's, it's the fans of, of Premier League clubs and certainly Championship club fans are demanding to be in the Premier League and demanding to stay in the Premier League and demanding to be in Europe. And clubs have to show ambition. I hate that phrase. The fans will say, well, have they got to show ambition? For, the, for me, staying in the Premier League is enough. But I want to see... A, I'd like to see attractive football, but also I'd like to see a Palace team that's got... Palace people in it. I, you know, we, we had Darren Ambrose on our Palace pod last week, and we were talking about the, the team he played in. And it was a pan. They weren't all locals, but it was a Palace team. It was a it was a team that tried to get the ball wide. It was a team that had some real horrible tacklers. Basically, we would have hated them for any other club, but they they reflected our working class fan base. I I want to see. I know we've got some really good players in the academy. I want to see them on the pitch. It's like we've got Tyreek Mitchell who looks like he's going to be better than Aaron Wan-Bissaka, if we didn't have two injuries at left back, he wouldn't have got near the, he wouldn't have got near the squad. You know, Roy Hodgson doesn't want to play youngsters, partly because he doesn't think they're ready for the Premier League, but partly because he thinks the fans won't like it. But the fans are so forgiving to to, to your own players, to local players. They, they get No one's going to boo your own kids from your own academy. Everyone's going to get really get behind them. And then what happens is someone like Aaron Wan-Bissaka... And, and in a way, it's brilliant that he did go to Man United, but because it got us forty-five million quid. I mean, he's, I don't look, but he goes to Man United, and it, it halts his development. If I, if he was still at Palace, he'd be becoming a better player. But he goes to Man U with with the pressure of every single Man U fan across the world saying, "Why are we buying this kid from Man United? Why are we buying a kid from Barcelona or or, or Madrid?" And it puts the the players in an almost impossible situation. Like you say, fans love a story but at the same time they want to see their own or they want to see someone who's finally getting into the Premier League after it's like the lad who played for Scotland last week the, um, the Aberdeen player who played for Scotland Andy Considine uh, Andy Considine which is what what a brilliant story that at the age of 33 he gets his first Scottish cap but if Palace were to announce they were signing a Scottish international and it turned out it was him Palace fans wouldn't be pleased. You know what I mean? So Palace fans love the story. Football fans love the story. But at the same time, they don't want the story to happen at their club. But that's that's the trouble with football fans. That we are a strange, fickle, romantic, cynical, 
bunch, basically. Um, and and for a football club owner, it's difficult to walk that to walk that tightrope. And again, it comes back to your your question about the future of English football with Liverpool and Man United. I think those clubs are really in danger of of forgetting. They sell the club as a brand all over the world, but they forget who it is that made that club a brand. They forget to tell the Shankly story. They forget to tell even the Alex Ferguson story now. He's fading into history, let alone the Matt Busby's of this world or the Tommy Doherty's. They forget to bring the original fans with them. And, you know, and, and the Premier League, Sky Sports, BT Sport, they talk about everyone over the world loves the atmosphere at Premier League grounds. If you don't bring ordinary working class football fans along on this particular ride, there won't be an atmosphere in 10 years' time. It will be, every game will be like an Arsenal game because every game, every ticket will be, and that's no criticism of Arsenal because I used to love going to Highbury. Highbury was one of the best atmospheres in, in, in England. I used to love going there, but it disappears. Once you decide that your matchday income is going to mainly come from corporate sales, your atmosphere is going to go because you inevitably price working class people out of the game and they're the ones who give the game the atmosphere. It's as simple as that. If you're only going to five games a season, as I say, because your accountant's got a couple of season tickets, you're not. You know, you're there for the food. You're there for the, the products. You're not there to support your football team. I, I spoke to a, a chat. I did a, a book thing the other night. A local. Uh, I didn't know there was a Streatham Literary Festival calibre until they phoned me up. But I agreed to do this thing at the Streatham Literary Festival, and it was in a local pub. But it was socially distanced. It was great, and I really enjoyed doing it. We had some really good questions, but I focused on this chap who had a Liverpool shirt on, and I threw a lot of stuff to him. And it turned out afterwards that not only was he really posh, but he had a season ticket for four London clubs, which infuriated me because he turns out he's some kind of commercial banker and it's just he likes football and his, his friends bought him a Liverpool shirt and he likes to wear it. But he, he will go to one, he'll go to Fulham one week and he'll go to Ireland. It's like, well, you can't do that. But eventually, that's the sort of football fan that will be going into every football ground in the in the Premier League, which which might be a good thing for teams in the, in the EFL. It might be a good thing for the Mansfields of this world. It, that disillusioned Derby and Nottingham Forest fans go, now sod this, I'm going to go to Mansfield. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to follow them from now on because it's, it's just getting further and further away from us, basically. And I, I don't know how it feels in Scotland, but yeah, I just feel, Palace not so, Palace are very aware of where their fan base is, you know, and in the same way as, as West Brom are very aware where their fan base is. I reckon 80% of West Brom fans are probably only travelling half an hour or less to go to a West Brom game. Same with Palace. You know, most of Palace fans are going two or three train stops at most to get there. And Palace are very good at at recognising that. But that that will change as well. You know, as soon as we get our new stand and you know if we if we end up you know finishing fifth in the Premier League one season and we get new fans in then the Palace will inevitably take advantage of that of course they will but in the long run it's it's not the right way forward for me well the thing that comes with all of this new infrastructure as you've talked about where whether it be stadium developments is the fact that yes you can have fancy beer taps that pour themselves but it takes away from the authenticity of those fried onions as you approach a football ground uh-huh. and you can smell it as soon as the bus or or you get off the train I I, um, I talk about it in the book. I actually had a row with Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I've got a habit of uh, accidentally annoying people, Callum. Uh, 
I work with a lot of celebrities in my life and it's got to the stage now where I, I get home, Ali just looks at me and I give her a name and she raises her eyebrows and that's it because I don't mean to, but I, I, Chris Packham, for example, will never share a car with me again, but uh, I just wanted to know why mice were grey on the tube and I just, apparently I kept on and on about it, but but I'd, I'd, I once had, um, I met Gordon Ramsay a couple of times on various shows, uh, enough so that the this time I met him, he remembered my name and we had a chat. And we talked about various things. And it, it just so happened that for my wedding anniversary, um, some of my friends had clubbed together and got uh, a table for two in a, in a Gordon Ramsay restaurant. And it was it was brilliant. It was lovely. Uh, and I, I said to Gordon, I ate in one of your, your restaurants. And he went, oh, which one? I told him. And he said, oh, I was cooking that night. I said, it was great. It was brilliant. It was wonderful. Um, and he said... I said, I think there's a butt coming on. Was it? I said, no, no, it's not a butt. I said, it's all a question of content. I said, Gordon, the thing is, you're one of the best cooks in the world, but you will never cook anything that tastes as good as a burger after Palace of One on the way to the pub. And it's all about context. And he got the hump for some reason. I didn't, but you, but you're, you're right because it's that. I mean, that's a. Again, I don't want to go down the nostalgia route, but that, as you say, that that smell of fried onions after a beery afternoon at football that's that's the sort of thing that you will lose but that's the sort of thing that sky and bt keep going on about they keep talking about the precious atmosphere but that that atmosphere is being diluted and and let's acknowledge the fact callum that there will be people who go well good i'm pleased that football is becoming a more pleasant experience uh but it it still needs to be somewhere where working class people can safely let off steam without offending people but where you can just get up and shout for random reasons you know it's it's it just it it does need to, it needs to be like that and I, i'm it's it's once it's not like that it will never you'll never get it back it's as simple as that and and it is a better i hate the word product but it it is better than when i used to go and see it but we when i was a kid going to football we didn't know that it, it could be better that was the best it ever was when i was a kid football was football and it was brilliant it's like we it's only when you got older that you realise you were being treated like shit, you know, that there was no, you were getting soaking wet, that the police were treating you awfully, that you were being herded into, and that the pitches were terrible. And, and it is a, it, it is a better product now, of course it is, but it's, it's a product, and that's the only word I can think of, and that's a, that's an awful way of putting it. It's, 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 we're losing it from our culture, and it, and I've said this before, Kieran. It's the same in Scotland. It's, it's one of the few places where traditional working class history is 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 alive is still is still there you know some of the scottish football nicknames are just fantastic but scottish football teams are based around their their community their teams of fishermen or miners or or or, or builders in the same way that palace are a team of glaciers you know the warsaw are a team of saddlers these things are these things are important and we once we lose them, we won't get them back, and I think that's a. I think that's a great show. I still love it. I still love. I still think football is the most amazing thing. I, I, I genuinely don't understand what people who don't like football do with their lives. It just mystifies me. It baffles me because I love. I love the theatre. I love the cinema. I love arts. I love all sorts of of stuff. But I, I if you said to me you can't go to the theatre again, I'd go. Well, that's a shame. But you know, never mind. I've seen a lot of plays. If you said you can't go to football, and also I will say this to football fans: what do they talk about? People who don't like football, what do they talk about to strangers at weddings? You know that you know that terrible moment when you go to a, a friend's wedding, 
and you sit down and you you oh, hello how do, how do you know them and you, you say and then you go Saturday afternoon's a bad time for a wedding and they go why you say well I'm missing the football they go oh we don't really understand football it's like oh Christ what are we going to talk about do you know what I mean because because as you know yourself you could meet a stranger anywhere right? and if if you mention within five minutes that you're a football fan and he's a football fan within ten minutes you're best mates. Right, within within fifteen minutes, you're falling out about rivalries, but you you've just got so much shared interest. If you're a if you're a football fan and you love the game, and I, I always love when people come up to me and say, "Oh, I remember I was at you know that game you talked about. I was at that game, or or our team once had this kit, or yeah, I remember the worst referee decision ever." I'm genuinely interested. I want to hear about these things, and I love hearing people tell stories about growing up and taking you know, and taking their kid back to the seat they used to sit in as a kid, or scattering their dad's ashes or their mum's ashes over a particular part of the game. I love all that because it just reminds me how important the game is to to so many people. And it's 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 a certain type of game that's important to us as well. And it's we we need that passion. We need that uh, that stupid love for the game that's disappearing from the media a little bit. Well, that's the thing that, that fascinates me about football as, as well, Kevin, where I love nothing more than hearing someone that supports a, a forest green or a Mansfield yeah. explain what their club means to them because yeah. we all know what, again, it's usually cliche, we all know what the, someone from Manchester thinks about Manchester United because yeah. we're exposed to it a lot on, on BBC or Sky and ITV, whereas when you get the opportunity to learn more about these clubs, I, I love it because these these types of football clubs always fascinate me. I mean... One of the clubs in the present day that fascinate me is Exeter in the sense that they've made an awful lot of money, as you've talked about the podcast with Kieran, from their youth academy. And I think yeah. that's something to be to, to be celebrated. And again, the thing about this, the book that you've written that really I just I just love as a, as a fan is the fact that, and it's in one of the reviews from, from the great Alan Davis, I mean, you devote as much time to the big clubs as you do to the so-called smaller clubs. And the the big question I've got for you now, is there a particular club that you were researching and you've written about who you think, wow, you're far more interesting than, than I ever thought? That's, that's a very good question, and I'll, I'll come to that. But you're, you talk about Mansfield and you talk about Exeter. One of the things I loved about the book was finding out that Exeter City, for example, have got a poet in residence, the Bard of Exeter, which... <laughs> I genuinely hesitated to tell my dad because my dad thinks the game went the first time goalkeepers wore gloves, essentially. If I right, if I told my dad that there was a club that had a poet, he just wouldn't be happy about it. Uh, and luckily, the, the, I mentioned that in the book, and the poet got in touch with me and wrote a poem for my dad, which I haven't shown him yet. Um, but the, the 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 Mansfield thing, again, the extra thing is like really interesting. Like I knew they were called the Grecians, but then finding out why... Because um, I I didn't want to do loads of research before I wrote the book because I, I thought that would take the edge off the book. I didn't want to go into libraries and the internet for six months doing loads of research. I wanted to write each chapter as though I was sort of writing stand-up, as though so it was like immediate. So basically I would have at most two two websites up. for each. I would decide on the way home from work what club I was going to write about and then I'd get two websites up at most and just sort go, oh, that looks interesting, I'll explore that, or I'll use that to explore another facet of football. But the Mansfield one, it just made me sad because, I, and I talk about it in the chat, when I was a kid, and you, you mentioned the, the Sky and ITV there, it's because of Sky and ITV that I don't know about Mansfield anymore. When I was a, a kid, and, and I don't think, I think the age between sort of seven and 13 is when you're most obsessed with football. Uh, and when I was a kid, 
I knew, I would tell you what where Mansfield's ground was. I would tell you what their kit was, what their nickname was. But I'd also tell you who the manager was. I'd tell you who the captain was. I'd be able to tell you who they were playing on Saturday because we had all these football magazines that had those clubs in them. They, the, the first division was, was big, but it wasn't massively bigger than the rest of football. So you would have these articles about those football clubs and you would get league tables, like Shoot magazine used to have cardboard league tables, the best day of the year when they arrived, apart from Christmas Day. It's great. So you knew about these clubs. And now I can't even tell you what Mansfield Stadium is anymore because it, it won't be Field Mill, but it will be the, the Ram Jam cab company uh you know it'll be the it'll be the tinker taker soldier sailor stadium because they change each year and i won't know what they are and that that upsets me it, it depresses me that i don't i'm not steeped in this knowledge of of football like yeah but i i one of the things that worried me about reading writing the book was like burton albion i just think well, the palace have never played burton albion how am I going to write about Burton Albion? And it's like, what I would do is like, I've often read these things in in like the Sunday Times and the Observer, and it, and it and it's my it will say my writing day by some famous writer or or to, you know biographer or whatever. And, it, and it's I wake up at seven in the morning, I drink a cup of coffee made by beans that have been eaten by a squirrel and then defecated onto a tree leaf. I do some yoga. I climb into my to my bamboo tree house. I, I face the rising sun and I write a chapter and then I, I do some meditate. And it's like, I was, I was going to work, coming home, feeding my dad, doing the washing, doing the feeding the cat and cramming a chapter in. So I remember sitting after I was on the way home from work and I'd had a drink and I was sitting on the train thinking, I've got, I can't put Burton off any longer. I've got to write about Burton Albion. And the only thing I could think of was I, I couldn't stand their badge. They've got the worst badge in football apart from Bournemouth. They're, if you look at Burton Albion's badge, it looks like a pregnant Eiffel Tower. So I thought, well, at least I can at least I can start from badges. And so at least I can use Burton to talk about football badges. But then you start to look at the history of Burton and it's quite recent and it's it's just as interesting as well. You know, they've won loads of stuff. It just happens to be stuff in the North Staffordshire League or whatever. But then it turns out that Burton over various years have been in the Northern League, Southern League. They keep getting moved about and you know they came out of the brewing industry, so that's something else. So in the end, you think about Burton responsible for for beer, which is what I watch when I'm watching football. So that's a brilliant thing. So there was there, there wasn't one single club that I didn't go. Actually, I could write far more on this than I than I thought. And some of the clubs like Exeter, again, you think this is amazing. Why didn't I know this fact? The the Rochdale one is the one I use most as a as an example. So I, I've got a couple of mates from Rochdale, like Mark Chapman, uh, Five Live Chappers, uh, is from, from Rochdale. So I wanted to use the chapter to take the piss out of him, really, for supporting Man U rather than Rochdale. But it turned out he moved to Manchester when he was two, so he's probably got a, a reason. But then you look at Rochdale and you go, well, actually, this is quite, you know, the co-op was founded in, in Rochdale. But then, and then Rochdale is surely, if you live in the south of England and somebody says to you, imagine the north of England, you would think Rochdale and you go, and then you find out that Rochdale is officially the least successful football club in England. Uh, they've never, you know, they've spent more time in the lower leagues than any other football club. They get promoted once every 33 years on average and relegated the year after. So I thought, well, that's quite interesting. But then I discovered that Rochdale had the first ever black manager in English football. Now, I'm obsessed with history and I'm obsessed with, with football. I didn't know that. And this guy called Tony Collins, who became their manager in 1962, 
uh, took them to the League Cup final when it was a two-legged affair. And not only was he English football's first black manager, he was Palace's first black player. He, he played for Palace as a, as a kid. He moved up north to play for Rochdale, became player manager, then player manager. And it's like, why don't, why don't I know this story? So now I don't look upon Rochdale as the least successful football club in England. I look upon him as the club with the first ever black manager. And, and every club, like Northampton Town, it turns out, had a, had a guy called Walter Toll, who became the first ever black English officer to lead white soldiers into battle in the First World War and died, but he played for Huddersfield, uh, for Northampton. It turns out that Walter Chapman, the legendary manager of Huddersfield and Arsenal, started there. Bill Shankly, was, was, his first job was at Carlisle, and he was the masseur as well at Carlisle. And he used to do the team, the team changes. He used to announce them over the PA, and explain why. So instead of the program announcer, yeah, the, the, the announcer going, right, at number two, it's so-and-so. Bill Shankly would go on in saying, say, Turnbull had a terrible game last week, so he's dropped. And then, so, so all these things, so every, there wasn't one club that didn't have something that made you go, that's really interesting. And I, I was worried before, because I thought, God, it's going to be, especially clubs that I've never seen Palace play at, I thought this is going to be tricky. But every single club had something or brought back some memory and I realised as well when I was looking at uh, Scottish clubs recently for a price of football thing, even then there's so many Scottish clubs that, that brought back memories of, of results coming through on a Saturday afternoon. Or one of the reasons I, I, I quite like Dunfermline and St Mirren is because when I was a, a kid, there was a picture in the shoot annual. So that, that's, that was always first on my Christmas list. I wanted the shoot magazine annual. And there was a picture in there of a, a Dunfermline player who'd been fouled. And he was in such agony that he was biting the shin pad of a St Mirren player. It was, uh, and I, I saw, which is the, it's still the best football picture I've ever seen. So I've always had a soft spot for St Mirren. And if I lived in Scotland, of course, I wouldn't have a soft spot for any Scottish team. But as I'm English, I'm allowed to have a soft spot for. So again, it, it's just that there isn't there isn't a club in our in our country or your country that hasn't got a really interesting story. And if you talk to, as you say, if you talk to a Mansfield fan, you will find out. The stories that aren't in the official histories. You'll, you'll. I mean, that's the other thing I like about Mount. So I remember we got uh, promoted. Back to, I think it's 1975. We played Mansfield in Division, the old Division Two, the old Championship. And there was there was about 20 Mansfield fans there, and they kicked off afterwards. Well, so I've always got this image of these 20 Mansfield fans trying to kick off, and it was such a bad riot that it took one copper to stop it. But I've always been fascinated by who these Mansfield. I remember uh, a game. It was about 1990, we played Doncaster, and there was these four old chaps, they must have been in their 80s, walking down the road in front of us, Doncaster fans, and they had they still had rattles and rosettes. And it's just like, I was just fascinated by these old guys that are still going to Doncaster games, still with rattles and rosettes. And Palace are a friendly bunch of people, but every single Palace fan was just walking past them going, oh, what's the rosette about, mate? And the one guy from Doncaster going, oh, I had this with me in the 1950 when we beat It's like, it's it's just brilliant. It's, it's, it's just fantastic. And we found out when we made a, a reference uh, to one of the Arbroath's fundraising schemes, which is a really good fundraising scheme, but... Uh, uh, and our and our bro fan misheard the tone of what Kieran had said about this fundraising scheme and and took offence and and we got some brilliantly angry tweets from our bro fans until we explained what we actually meant and now we're best friends with all these angry our bro fans but that that the anger of those our bro fans just proved to me how important each club is to each football fan you know it's it's like a mate of mine who supports Crawley 
I'm not I'm not a fan of Crawley because it's halfway between Croydon and Brighton. It's sort of the perineum of of our part of the world. It's between, <laughs> but and also Brighton play their youth team games here, so I don't. But but to him, Crawley is the center of his the center of his world, and you know he misses. He misses going to for a drink with his mates before Crawley games and after Crawley games as much as I do at Palace games, and and he'll they all happily go into a reverie about Crawley players of the nineteen seventies that I've never heard of that mean as much to them as as Ronaldo does or Mane does to Liverpool fans. And in terms of Palace, the big question when it comes to Crystal Palace in the book is how did you write that chapter, especially when you wanted to give equity of space in the book to Palace as well as the other clubs? That was difficult, Callum, I have to say, because on a personal level, I could have written the whole book about Palace. Um, And Bloomsbury, Matt Lying, my editor, is a South End fan. And it's really fun because Bloomsbury, a legendarily posh publisher, I was really pleased that Bloomsbury took the book on. But Matt, who's who's the head of the sports part of Bloomsbury, is not posh. He's a proper little South End wide boy. So how he got a job at Bloomsbury, I don't know. But he wanted he wanted me to rein in the Palace chapter because he he didn't want it to be a Palace book. So originally the title was 91 football clubs and why you shouldn't support them because obviously I wasn't going to write about why you shouldn't support Palace. Uh, I came up with three reasons in the end, one of which is we've got enough fans, thank you, we don't need you. Uh, but I... He he said it can't be a palace. You've got to treat Palace the same way as you treat other clubs. Now, obviously, I acknowledge that that's difficult, but his point is as well. It's like because I talk about in the introduction that you've all got your you've got you've got your version of of Chirpy and and Roy and Gaz and Steve and Dicky and all the other people that I still go to football with, but it would take too long to explain the context of those people to readers so you know the fact is that Gaz is called Gaz because he doesn't look anything like Gary Shaw who used to play for Villa in the 80s but by the time you've explained that to people they're they're reading a different book so and I I also wanted it I wanted there to be elements of autobiography in there because I don't think you can write a book about football without your own element your own experience of football creeping in but it it was difficult There there are a lot more things about Palace that I had to leave out than than I had to leave him. But see, the other thing about the Palace chapter is it, it, it it's difficult to write a, a book about football history. A, because it, was, because it was essentially a working class game at the start. Not many people wrote the history of a club down. And B, because there were... One of my favourite quotes in the book is from a history of Shrewsbury Town, which says that in the 1890s, Shropshire was a hotbed of football, which made me laugh for five minutes. I just... Until I did the research, and at one stage in Shropshire, there were forty-nine football clubs of like amateur, semi-professional football clubs, and over the years those clubs disappear. And the, you know, it's like I played football. I played Sunday football for twelve years for five different teams, but all essentially the same team, mainly the same blokes. But we went to a different pub and changed the name of the team. But no one ever wrote down the history of the club because you never thought it was going to become a, a professional football club. So it's quite difficult researching these things but even when it comes to researching your own club nobody I'd spoke to about Palace agreed with anything that had happened all this there's a story in there because we we missed we beat Oxford 6-0 away one day and we missed it because my mate Chirpy was always late was on this occasion 24 hours late with the car 
Right? And he was driving because he turned up 24 hours late and he blamed the clocks going back. Right? The fact that this was November was of no interest to him. To it. It was like, so we missed the game. And I mentioned that in the book. And when I was telling my mates about this, they went, no, that's not why we missed the Oxford game. We missed the Oxford game because we, we, Gaz was too hungover to drive. And we, by the time we got to Paddington, the train had gone. Or somebody went, no, no, the car crash. So we couldn't even agree on why we'd missed the Oxford game. The story I tell about why I support Palace, which in my mind is 100% true, um, my first day at primary school, I got sat next to this kid who was so much taller than me, I thought I was in the wrong class. I thought they'd put me two classes up and I started crying and he put his arm around me and he was wearing a, a Palace jumper that his mum had knitted uh, and he's still my best mate you know, all these decades later on. He denies point blank that any of that ever happened. He said, I, and he's, he said, when would I ever put my arm around any blood? And he's right. He's the least affectionate man I've ever met. And he said, my mum can't even knit. How could she have knitted me a palace? But in, as far as I know, this story is true, but it's really, it's really difficult to get to the bottom of the truth of any football club's history. So that was another of the reasons why I thought I need to keep the palace history as, as respectful as possible because I'm just going to get dog's abuse for Palace fans for the rest of my life going, that wasn't true, that bit. Was... So I had to keep, I had to make sure all the facts were right about particular games that we'd been at and like make sure I did say semi-final, not final and stuff. But for the most part, it's kind of, and I'm sure every football fan will tell you the same thing, that stories grow in the telling, for example. So for example, you have the, this this thing, the Streatham Literary Festival, I told you that they asked me to, to read a chapter and I, I read the Millwall chapter out and there's a bit in there about uh, the terrible trouble there used to be at Millwall games and how after one Millwall game uh, we left a pub that we thought was friendly and, and my mate Roy got rammed by a car right? but it turned out it wasn't Millwall fans it was my it was my wife basically who'd, who'd, who'd agreed to come to pick us up and had sat outside the pub for two hours which we didn't realise about and Roy had once criticised her driving so I'm fairly certain she did it deliberately but then she was at this do, and she said, none of that happened. I said, it did. It all happened. She said, yeah, bits of it. They all happened, but on different days. So you've taken a story that in my head is absolutely true. But she said, you've made a story out of four different things. But then when I spoke to Roy, he said, no, she definitely rammed me in the car. So you can't say football fan. And every time, you'll know yourself, every time a football fan, it's like when um, Neil Shipley, who scored the winning goal for us at, at, at Wembley in the playoff final, uh, when we, the one at Cardiff against West Ham, uh, depending on how many pints Neil Shipley's had, he was either five yards, 10 yards, 15 yards, 20 yards or 25 yards from goal when he told that story. And it, every football fan's the same. All our stories grow in the telling until the myth takes over. The legend becomes the truth. And that's and again, that's one of the other things I love about football, but it does make writing a, a book about other clubs harder. You know what I mean? That's, again, I'll take you back to that West Brom chapter when I'm researching all the different reasons for and then because I, I i've researched the eight reasons and then talked to adrian Childs about it not long afterwards he went oh no none of those are the real reason and he came up with a reason that was just as ridiculous but we all have our our myths and legends and once we believe them we're never going to stop believing them we, once we talk ourselves into the fact that we were the first person to see the referee blow the whistle in the semi-final against Liverpool in 99, which I'm convinced I was the first person to see the ref. I did, the crowd parted just as the referee blew his whistle. I'm convinced I celebrated a second before any other Palace fan. And once that's in my head, I'm not letting go of that memory, whether it was, whether it was false or not.
you know, it's like the only thing I'm sure of is I was at that game, but I've convinced myself that I saw the referee blow the whistle before anybody else did, and no, no one can convince me otherwise. That uh, just sums up football and, and, the, and the passion of fans. And another aspect of the book that's unique is the fact that the foreword of the book comes from Gary Lineker. Yeah. I'm going to be honest, I, I, I'm going to be biased. I think Gary's an exceptional uh, presenter. I love Match of the Day. And I'll be honest, I don't think it's the same when he's not hosting. He's, he's For me, he is the master of his craft when it comes to presenting and fair play to him, considering he, he started out as, as a footballer, of course, and a successful one at that. How much did it mean to you that, that Gary wrote the foreword to the book because he's massive within the game of football? It, it, it meant a great deal, Callum, actually. Uh, and that, that's a good question. I, I've, I've seen the actual tape of Gary's first ever tryout as Match of the Day presenter a long time ago, um, which is why he was happy to agree to do the foreword because he does. Um, I've known Gary for a long time. When he, yeah. when he first started doing They Think It's All Over, I used to write with him and help him out and he was he was always nice Gary he was always an interesting bloke but he was happier in the company of other millionaire footballers to be perfectly honest he was always a little bit wary because he used to worry about telling people like me stuff in case it got in the tabloids and it took me a while to earn his trust I think but we've been mates for a long time and I've written stuff on and off him for quite some time so it, it was really important for me to get somebody with that level of credibility to endorse the book. And unfortunately, in, in a cynical way, Bloomsbury were also really keen as well because they said, look, people will, you know, if they see Gary's name on the front of the book, if they're, if they're humming and ahhing about buying it, they'll probably buy it if Gary's name's on the book. If you've got somebody who's looking for Christmas presents for their family who like football, they may not necessarily buy a book with your name on, but they'll buy a book with his name on. As it happens, his bloody name's on the cover more than mine now. His, his, his name Gary Lineker's on it twice, but <laughs> it, it 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 did mean an awful lot to me. And what he wrote actually made me quite emotional because what he, did, he the words he wrote were really, really personally meant a lot to me. And but also he got he got it. He understood the nature of the book, and he in his foreword he he talks about moaning reading the Leicester chapter because I sent him the Leicester, the Leicester chapter. And he talks about reading it and halfway through going with me just disagreeing with everything I said, laughing as he read it, just going, that's bollocks, that's not true. And there's a bit where I said they won they won the Premier League with maybe only one properly decent player. And he just went, I nearly stopped reading then. But then at the end, in the footnotes, I went, well, actually, I'll give you, I'll give you, they, they probably had three players. I'll give you Mares and I'll give you, I'll give you Vardy as well as a world-class player. And he went, so you and you saved yourself. And he said, that's what the rest of the book was like. It's like you annoy football fans, but then you save yourself by saying something genuinely correct about the club. But what he wrote, it it it, it meant it did mean a lot to me. Yeah, and I was I was I wasn't I, I thought he would do it when I, I when I asked him to. Um, but also as well, I, I was slightly sad that, that Bloomsbury were not cynical about it. But they said, well, look, he's got three million followers. That's not going to help harm if he tweets about it. But I, I'm very proud of the fact that, it's, it, that he wrote the foreword. I really am, and, and I'm very proud of the fact that he he, he understood it because actually I really I really like him now. I'm, and he's he wasn't at all political when I first met him. He, he had no interest in in politics. He's, he was, as I say, he was always nice, but he just had no interest in politics. And now the the change in him, the the social awareness that he has, and the the stick he gets with some of his tweets. Uh, 
but he he kind of revels in it. He likes annoying the establishment now. And as you say, he's a really good presenter. And in his own in his own quiet way, he's very good at bringing stuff out of people. And, and in fact, one of the things I lo- one of the only things I liked about lockdown was that when we had the total lockdown, which please God we won't go back into. Uh, under, completely in the way we did before but when we had the total lockdown and there was no football there was part of me that actually quite enjoyed the the relaxation of there not being any football because normally around about Thursday I start thinking about Saturday's game are we going to win are we going to lose do we need the points what would be a good result and I start to get slightly nervous it's, it's odd it's like almost like stage fright and I, I, I really didn't miss that but also match of the day did this series of of shows with uh, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, like like themed shows, like top ten goal scorers, top foreign players in the Premier League, and they were they were brilliant. They were really really good, and it's like Wrighty and, and Alan Shearer, without the pressure of upsetting current Premier League players, which they they really feel they really don't want to upset current players. They don't want to upset current managers, but just them talking about different times in their own career was 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 really good telly, really good telly. It, it, Wrighty in particular talking about racism because they had a, a thing about top 10 foreign player. He was just fascinating as well. And then in, uh, there was my favourite bit because Wrighty tied himself in knots because they talked about the top 10 best goals of the last uh, 10 years. And obviously, Palace fans were furious when Andros Townsend's goal against Man City didn't win goal of the season. Absolutely furious. So, Righty tied himself in knots by constantly saying that's the best goal. That should have been, and then of course he's getting stick from Arsenal fans going, "What are you talking about, Palace for your Arsenal?" Stuff. But that was really good, and and Gary made that made that possible. And he's got he's got a really sneaky, dry sense of humour as well, um, which comes out quite a lot. And I and he he's no respecter of of authority, which which I like, and he treads that line very well in presenting football, but also. A, also giving the the pundits enough sort of rope to hang themselves a little bit. So yeah, you, I'm I'm pleased that you think he's a good presenter because he's worked hard on that as well. Absolutely, and, and the best um, credit I can give him, and obviously I'm a lot younger, and yeah, I'm sure he's got much more to worry about than my opinion. But <laughs> when you think of the great Des Lynham, he was really someone who was talked about an awful lot, and. And I don't mean this disrespectfully, but people talk about Gary now and they associate him with Match of the Day and they yeah, don't yeah. they don't um, have that nostalgia that we talked about earlier. And for me, that's the ultimate compliment to him because you know what it's like. It's like Soccer Saturday, the day Jeff Sterling leaves, right. whoever whoever goes into that role, yeah. it'll always be known as Jeff Sterling's show until someone really establishes himself and, and he certainly has done that. I, I couldn't agree more because what Jeff Sterling does... I mean, I've been there on a Saturday when that show's going on. It's astonishing. For the first thing is he knows most of the stuff anyway. His research his research is, is amazing. Jeff Stelling's researching from Thursday onwards into the Saturday games. And when he mentions uh, a Notts County player, it's not because someone in his ear has told him the name of the player and who the player used to play for. He knows that himself. But he's being bombarded with information the whole time. Uh, and also, he's got to deal with the pundits and what they're saying. It's a, it's amazing what Jeff Stelling does, and as you say, he still throws out the jokes. And and Gary would be, I think, I think supporting Leicester helped Gary. I think Gary's obvious joy at Leicester winning the Premier League title, and Gary doing it in his pan. I think that that obvious joy really helped him because it showed a more human side to him, and it showed that he genuinely does love still and is obsessed still 
about football to the extent that he was still moan about being substituted in his last game because somehow he says Alan Smith was supposed to score goals when I couldn't. And he still, it still means stuff to him. And the thing is, you, you talk about him not worrying about your opinion. Gary's that the sort of bloke who would, if, if you were introduced to him and, and you were chatting, it, if you put an opinion to him, as long as it was done politely, not the way people do it on Twitter, he would he would discuss it with you. He would talk he would talk about football with with anyone who he thinks is of goodwill. If if, if he thinks you're trying to take the piss out of him, he'll walk away. But if if you were to ask him about a particular goal he scored or a particular Leicester player that he admired or his favourite England manager, he'll tell you. He'll talk to you for for ages. And they're, they're the sort of people I admire. John Terry. Is somebody with a really bad reputation. John Terry is one of the nicest people you can meet in 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 the game. And when my cousin, who's now plays for Staley Bridge Celtic, he was on the on the books at um, Blackburn, and they had to let him go because they they had an embargo on on signing new players. And he was on the books at Morecambe when they went bankrupt, and then he got injured. He was on loan at Whitehawk, a club in uh, Sussex, a decent non-league club, and he got injured. And he was he was really really distraught. He was really down in the dumps, and he came to this show one night the ridiculous play to the whistle and i spoke to john terry when he arrived as i said i've never met john before but he knew who i was and i just said to him mate if you get if you get a chance because i know you were out for a long time for a injury if you get a chance can you just have a word with my with my cousin and he he spoke to my cousin for about two and a half hours afterwards and just encouraged him and told and told him to keep going and told him how depressed he got when he was out when he missed games for injury and it's like you just go this is not the john terry i've been told about by the, the press. And I'm sure some of the things you hear about John Terry are true, but this guy you're presenting me with is actually a really nice guy. And it's the same with, with Lineker. People go, oh, he's bland. He's just a corporate guy. He's not at all. He's He loves football. He's obsessed with football. And he will talk to anyone about it as long as he thinks they're, as I say, on the level, basically. So he, And also he'd be really pleased if I say to him that somebody young thinks he's a good presenter. <laughs> that really and The other thing with Gary is I, I don't, I don't know how he does it. It's like I'm, yeah, I've, I've got a certain degree. I, I dress well. My clothes match. My my hair's looking shit now, but normally my hair looks good. I'm, I was I was a good looking young fella. If I walk down the corridor of Gary Lineker, I might as well not exist. It's just like literally, I become invisible to to women of a certain age. It's just like they they just love him, and I have to say to him, he hasn't got a hair on his face. He hasn't got a hair on his body. He's like Action Man down there. It's just like they just. He's just very attractive to certain women, which annoys me, really annoys me. And he knows it annoys me, so it pleases him. But he'll be pleased to hear that somebody young thinks he's a really good presenter. And in terms of, of the book, Kevin, you, you've given me so much of your time, which I'm always incredibly grateful for. I, I love talking football with you. And and as, as I've said, it's, it's a book that is for football fans. It's for people who love football, but also love the stories about football and are happy for, for a, a light-hearted laugh at football as well. What would you say to people who are maybe hearing this conversation and thinking, mm, I'm considering getting that book? Well, I'd say buy the book. It's um, it, it, I, I think anybody who likes football, I, I, if, I, if I hadn't written it, I would buy it, basically. And a, a few people have said to me, well, you should make the next one about Scottish football. And I said, I can't. It needs a Scottish football fan to write about Scottish football because I'm, I'm not steeped in the tradition of Scottish football the way I am in English football. I've only been to three games in, in, in Scotland. Yeah, I've been to Carlisle. I've been to Shrewsbury. I've been on the coaches overnight with, with Palace games. I've seen Palace play in all the divisions. It's Everything in the book is 
is authentic. It, it's genuine. It's like there are no lies in there. Yeah, I, I exaggerate. Of course, I do, and I might, I might bend the truth, but everything I say at heart is true. And if you're thinking, well, I'll probably like the chapter about my club. I think anybody with any interest in football will find something of interest in in all the other chapters as well, because most football fans will will not like half the clubs in the books. They'll be pleased to see me take the piss out of them a little bit. Or they'll have had a terrible away day to Derby. And they'll be going, yeah, that was me. But I think most of all, every football fan will recognise the scenarios. Every football fan will have the same sort of mates that I've got. The dozy one, the flash one, the one that never buys a drink, the one that pretends that he's been at every game, the one that's always late, the one that leaves before the end of the game. They, they'll all have those mates. They'll all recognise them. And I, I think for most football fans, it's a, it's a genuinely interesting book and one that reflects their their experience as well. And, and hopefully it'll be the sort of book that makes them go, yeah, I remember that. I remember the floodlights at that ground. I remember Fulham's away end. I remember the river there. I remember the Shrewsbury matches. So there's something in it for everybody. But it's a celebration of football. It's not it, it's not a snippy book. It's a it's a celebration. It celebrates every club base and it celebrates football. So that's why they should buy it. Plus, as I say. I really haven't got a lot of work at the moment because of COVID, so the money would be useful. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open I'll be filled with song, I'll be filled with song